So we are at the beginning of the Advent series, the Advent season that we're in as a church. And I realize that if you come from a background like me, Advent may be something that's strange to you. Maybe you've never heard that word before. Essentially, Advent means arrival. Now, what I have in my hand right here is a suitcase. Now, so let me ask you this question. When you see someone walking with a suitcase, what comes to mind? Travel, right? Things come to mind like this person is not yet where they're going. I want to invite you to see the season of Advent and really all of the Christian life as a journey, a pilgrimage, that even though we're here on this earth, we're not yet where we're going. And even though things in life are bad, that Jesus' kingdom is actually here right now, though it's not here fully yet. And so we, we, we walk in this world, we live in this world with one foot firmly planted in the world. We're building, as Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, we're building houses, we're, we're seeking the welfare of the city that the Lord has called us to. But with our other foot, we're, we're planted in heaven. We're seeking treasure in heaven. We're looking to the return of King Jesus to come and to make all things new. And within Advent, there are a few themes that we look at each week. One theme is the theme peace that we're looking at today. Another is hope, joy, and love. And those are the themes that really Jesus' ministry, the virtues and kind of themes that Jesus' ministry brings to us as the people of God. And so we, we take this season leading up to Christmas, which is the, the first coming of Jesus' kingdom, when his kingdom is established and he comes. And we look forward to the second coming when Jesus returns and makes all things new in his kingdom. So that's really what Advent is all about. I love this C.S. Lewis quote. It's one of my favorite ones. I've probably shared it within the last few months, but I love it. C.S. Lewis says this, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So I would say this as we enter into this Advent season, that it's going to mean more to us if we really kind of press down and drill down and see that there really is a sense of emptiness in us that longs for more of Jesus. That's what we're pursuing. We're going after more of Jesus. And the frame of reference that we're looking at these themes in Advent with is this theme of king, this mighty king whose rule and reign will never end, and his kingdom that which comes from him. And so as we look at it from the lens of king and kingdom, the theme that we're looking at today is this. Jesus is a better king. Jesus is a better king. So we're longing for God's presence, the presence of the king. And so we're looking back to the, the inauguration of his kingdom coming to earth, and we're looking forward to his second coming, and we're living in the tension of the already and the not yet, seeking for more of his presence today. So that's where we're going today, church. That's what we're looking at. As we look at this, I thought it would be good, since we do not live in a monarchy, it would be good to look at what a king is and what a king does. So let me ask you this question, and, and kids, I want you to think about this as well. Who's the first person that comes to mind whenever you hear the word king? Who's the first person that comes to mind? Maybe it's King Arthur. Maybe it's King Arthur of Camelot and the Knights of the Round Table. Maybe it's King Henry VIII and all of his wives, right? Maybe it's... Maybe it's King Leonidas of 300, the warrior king, the fighting king. Or maybe it's King Louis of the Jungle Book, right? I mean, the kind of the laid-back king of the Jungle Book. Or maybe, if it's like me, the, one of the first things that comes to mind is King Mufasa, right, of the Lion King. Or, if you really like music, maybe it's Elvis, the king of rock and roll. 
whatever it is, here's what we got to know about a king. The presence of a good king brings peace to the kingdom. The presence of a good king brings peace to the kingdom. The Bible calls this word peace shalom. Can everybody say that with me? Shalom. It means peace, but it also means so much more than what we think in the English of peace. It's kind of this all-encompassing, permeating presence of God. Where joy, flourishing, harmony, and fulfillment all come from this idea of shalom, of a shalom-filled kingdom. However, the blessing completely relies, the blessing of shalom, of peace, completely relies really on the character of the king. So here's how this works. If you have a good king, you've got a good kingdom. If you've got a bad king, you've got a bad kingdom. So the scriptures, really the Old Testament is a journey about this there's, there's a lot of talk about kings, First and Second Kings in the Bible, First and Second Chronicles talk all about this. So we're going to take this journey through looking at what the king's responsibilities would be. Then we're going to look at a brief history of kings in the Bible. And then we're going to look at how Jesus is the better king. So let's look first at the, the king's responsibility. Now, this isn't all-encompassing, but I, but I thought long and hard and, and pulled some other people in and said, hey, what does a king do? And I came up with three kind of overarching things that a king does, the purpose of a king. The first thing is this. The king establishes justice. So a king establishes and determines justice through his law. The king sets the law. The law shows the constituents, the people of the kingdom, how to live. So the king determines what it looks like to live and what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. He helps to set the law. So when the law is broken, the king would determine what the proper punishment is to right the wrong that's been done. The king also provides wisdom to the kingdom. He leads the kingdom with wisdom. And we see this, we're going to look forward to King Solomon, one of the wisest guys, the wisest guy to ever live, but not the best king. The second thing that the king does is he provides resources. When I was first thinking about this, I was thinking about it from such an American point of view. I was like, you know what the king does? He stewards the people's resources. I was like... I was thinking about that, and I was like, ah, actually, he doesn't. The king owns everything. The king decides who gets what and how they use it and how the resources are spent. So if you are a predominantly warring king, you like to go to war like maybe King Leonidas or something like that, you spend more of your kingdom's resources on conquering other territories so that you can increase your territory. So you have a, you have a mighty war. You pour a lot of resources in that. If you're predominantly concerned about your legacy... Maybe like King Herod, you build lots of buildings that will outlast you, so they'll tell the story of your greatness. Or if you're, if you're predominantly concerned uh, with the people's approval, you kind of give the people whatever they want so that you can stay popular in the people's midst. So then you also look at things like how much of the, the kingdom does the king keep for himself, and how much does he give away to his people? You look at all of these things, and they determine really what the character of the king is. They show us what kind of king that we have on our hands. The last kind of theme is this, is that the king protects the people. The king protects the people. So every king has a kingdom, and that kingdom comes with land and comes with people and resources and all that types of stuff. And the king has a responsibility to protect his people. This is why, you know, when I went to Israel, you'll look at all of these old cities, and you'll notice one thing about those cities. They have walls around them. That's how you protected the people. So even in times of war, 
you could still be safe because, you're, because the king has a plan for what it looks like to go to war. He doesn't risk the lives of the people at hand, but he, but he goes to war to keep the people safe. I mean, that, that, that could be one approach to, to warring there. So now that we've established these themes, I want us to dig into God's word together and kind of look at how these play out in the Bible. Let's turn to 1 Samuel. We're going to look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, and we're going to look at a brief history of kings of the Bible here. When Samuel became old, Samuel was the last judge, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. These were judges in Beersheba. Listen to this. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after gains. You see this sense of selfishness. They took bribes, and they perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons they don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us. And listen to this, like all the other nations. Israel began to look around. They began to compare themselves with other nations. But the, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done, from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them, and show them that the ways of the king who should reign over them. So here we see this... This kind of sense of sadness coming over the people of Israel in this time. Because they've decided to look around them. they decided to compare themselves to other kingdoms. And they've decided that, that the way that God is king over them is not sufficient enough. So they want a king that they can see, that they can be with, that they, they can know that is leading them. But, but God says, hey, Samuel, I want you to warn them how this is going to play out. This is not going to be good, but I'm going to give them what they want. I'm not, I'm not going to make them do something against their will. I'm going to give them what they want. And I'm also going to, we see that he's also going to be gracious to them. They want a people to rule themselves. And really what they're saying by this is they want to be king. They don't think that, that God is a sufficient king. And so they're saying that they want to be king. And what would ensue after this is we're going to see hundreds of years of failure. Hundreds of years of sadness. Hundreds of of years of disobedience because the people want to be king. So he doesn't stop them, but he, but, he, but he allows them to go on through with it and even gives them their desire. How gracious of God. Give them their desire and then, then help fix the issue that they've gotten themselves into. They, he leaves them up to their own devices there. And even in the sinfulness and selfishness of this self-made prison that they've created, he doesn't leave them, but he stays with them. There's grace in it all. So moving all along from this, we see... That, that God will raise up the first king, King Saul. Now, King Saul was a pretty good king for a period of time. But then there was this one day that this little shepherd boy had a, had a slingshot and a few stones, and he went and he got the king's armor, and he, and he talked to the king about taking down this, this giant of a man. And what was his name, kids? Goliath. Yeah, you guys know what he is. And, and in that moment when, when David struck down Goliath terror began to ensue inside of Saul's heart. 
maybe even before this. And he began to become so insecure. And, and when the king began to become so insecure, he started to make some very foolish decisions. And so we move right along. God raises up another king in Saul's place because Saul's reign is no longer sufficient. And this will be King David. And I would argue that King David is the best earthly king that we've ever seen before. Even though that he had a lot of issues, he's the best king we've ever seen before. So let's, if you have a Bible, flip a few pages over to 1 Samuel 13, and we'll look at the kind of the inauguration of, of King David's reign as king. 1 Samuel 13, 14 says this, But now your, meaning Saul's, kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man, listen to this right here, after his own heart. So you see, God's looking at something different than the people are looking at for a king. He's looking deeper within. He's looking at the heart of the king. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So we begin to see what makes a good king and what makes a bad king. It's the posture of the heart. You see, God isn't interested in in bringing a king. Even when we see King David come into power, we're told that it's one of Jesse's sons. Samuel goes and he looks at all Jesse's sons and he's like, oh, these are some impressive looking men, right? He's like, do you have any more sons? And, and Jesse kind of reluctantly says what? Well, I got this one that's kind of hiding out in a cave watching some sheep. But you really, I mean, these are my guys right here. You need to look at these guys. So he goes and he finds David. And David's the man for the job. Not because he's mighty and strong, although he would become those things. But because of his heart. God was interested in a man after his heart because, really, what, what was the desire of, of, of God? To be the king of his people. For his people to trust him. And so with a man that trusted him, had a heart after God, God would, would reign through that man. And that's what we see beginning to happen in King David. So although David was the, the best earthly king the world had ever seen, David's heart turns for a period of time. You, you might remember that he chases after a, a housetop mistress named Bathsheba. And he has, a, he has an inappropriate relationship with her. And ends up having a child. And then to cover up his sin, he sends this guy named Uriah, who's Bathsheba's real husband, to the front lines of battle. Basically putting him out to be murdered. And that's what happens. And because of this, God doesn't leave David's presence. But there is a consequence for David's sin. He's not able to build the temple. We see this, and we see in Psalm 51, it's a great, it's a great psalm to look at when you're thinking about repentance and sin. I often go to Psalm 51, and we see that David's heart is turned back toward God. That's what Psalm 51 is all about. So then God makes this promise in 2 Samuel 7, which is actually before this, he makes this promise to David even before he messes everything up, and he says this, and your house and your kingdom, 2 Samuel 7, 16, shall be made sure forever before me. And listen to this, your throne shall be established forever. So as a king, what is your greatest fear? That you won't have a son. That's why King Henry had all those wives, right? He was, he was so afraid that he wouldn't have a son that his kingdom couldn't go on. So what would be the best news that you could possibly hear as a king? That your kingdom would never end. That your family would always be on the throne. That's, what, that's the promise that God makes to David. And remember, why does God make that promise to David? It's because of the posture of his heart. Because God is the real king over his people. 
And David let God do what he wanted to do through his life. So that's where we see that. So, so David's not, not able to build the kingdom, which is, which is kind of a sad story. And then after David, he has this illegitimate son with this lady, Bathsheba. And this guy actually becomes the next king. His name's King Solomon. Now, you might know King Solomon is the wisest man to ever walk the face of the earth, and most likely the richest man to ever walk the face of the earth. King Solomon was filthy rich. Now, King Solomon's heart, what do you think happened to his heart? It was good for a while, but then after that, what happened? He turned away from God. Now, after King Solomon turns away from God, it gets kind of messy. The kingdom splits. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a family feud, and the family breaks up. And it turns into the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And you'll look at this chart right here. This is a list of all of the kings of Israel that would come afterwards. And what do you notice at the bottom of this chart that we're looking at right here on the screen? We notice that Israel falls to Assyria. What happens there is the kingdom is removed. The king is dethroned and the land, the kingdom is taken away because of this. Now we'll also look at the kingdom of Judah. A hundred or so years later, 140 years or so, after the kingdom of Israel falls, the kingdom of Judah falls to Babylon. And so what do you have is the people of Israel no longer have what? They don't have a land. They don't have a home. They don't have a king. So they go back to where they were before, wandering, living under oppression of other people that have conquered them. And so God gives them what they want. And they end up in the same place that they were before, longing for the king's presence to be with them and to lead them in righteousness and justice. So Eventually, Nehemiah and Ezra come along in, in around 522, and they rebuild the walls. And that lasts for a little bit, for a few hundred years. But there's a silence of period between the New Testament and the Old Testament of 400 years where God doesn't speak to his people. It's kind of this dark period of time, the intertestamental period. We don't have any writings of any prophets or anything like that. And eventually, Rome comes in, there's, there's the Hasmonean dynasty, then Rome comes in, and eventually the people of Israel, they may live in Israel, but it's occupied by Rome. Rome is overseeing it. There's a king, there's a Roman king that's over the Israelites, and his name, King Herod, at the time that Jesus was born, the better king. So this is where we pick up in Matthew chapter 2. So I told you it was going to be a brief history of the kings. So we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 2. And I'm actually going to do something that I've never done before. I'm going to read an entire chapter of the Bible right here in the middle of a sermon. I'm going to do this and kind of offer some live commentary because I want you to hear the story. And as we're in this series, you're going to notice that we're going to be hitting all of the themes of Christmas kind of from different angles. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2. And really what I've noticed about Matthew chapter 2 is this. Is this a story of two kings? It's a story of two kings. It's King Jesus and King Herod. Now, King Jesus is a baby. King Herod is a full-grown man, and he's what we would call a client king of Rome, but he's in Israel. So basically, he is operating on behalf of Caesar, Augustus, here in Israel. So he's, that's kind of who he's answering to. And then there's, so there's Caesar Augustus that's in Rome that we hear about in the Bible. There's Herod the Great, who's the client king that's over Israel. And then there's Pontius Pilate is another guy that's mentioned on down the road, who is a, is a Roman governor over Judea, who actually sends Jesus to the cross, right? So here we go. We're going to read Matthew chapter 2 together, and, and we're going to talk through this together. But I want you to listen. I want you to listen for Herod's story in this. What, what you're going to notice about Herod is what you notice about every other king. Herod's terrified. Just like, just like Saul was terrified after that little boy that had a heart that was after God, King Herod is absolutely terrified. And Matthew 2 just tells us all about 
how terrified he is. So let's read Matthew 2 together. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have came to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where this Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. So all this is prophesied about. You're going to see like four prophecies in Matthew 2 fulfilled with Jesus' coming. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, I've, I've been to Bethlehem. I was there a few weeks ago. Bethlehem is nothing to write home about. It's a, it's a small little town. It's about 30 minutes outside of Jerusalem. It's not very far away. I was in Bethlehem. I was, I was there. The interesting thing about where Jesus was probably born was like in a cave. So the hotel would have been kind of on top. Uh, and then, you know, anytime someone would find a cave, they'd build a building on it because it's like a free basement, right? It's like, man, I wish we could find those in Georgia, a free basement. That'd be nice. So they, would build a, they built a hotel on top of it. Well, there was no room in the inn. So they said, hey, go down to the basement. You can go down to the, the place where we keep the animals when people are traveling. And so that's where, likely where Jesus was born was in this cave. Uh, picking back up in Matthew 2, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. You see how terrified he is. He's, he's, he's scrambling here. He's getting everybody around him to give him answers. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Yeah, you're going to come and worship him. All right, right. He's not going to come and worship him. He's going to come and take his life. So, so the wise men, what are they originally? They're spies. They're spies sent out by Herod to go find out more about Jesus. So we'll see how that works out in just a second. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over a place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped. They couldn't help it. They fell down and they worshipped. They were sent out as secret agent spies. And they came and they met Jesus, and they had no option but to worship Jesus. That's what they did when they saw Jesus. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. They, they pulled out the most valuable things that they could find because they wanted to show how grateful they were to be in the presence of the king. And those gifts were gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So they, they kind of bail on the whole Herod plan because they've met Jesus. Now when they, de they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So we're seeing God really work through these dreams here. And said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Joseph's got to be thinking, God, what are you talking about? You delivered us from Egypt. You want me to go back to Egypt? And I've got the king of the world as a baby. You want me to take him back to Egypt? He's got to be thinking it's a crazy idea. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. King Herod, he's insecure. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So they stay in Egypt until Herod dies. This was to fulfill what the Lord had, been, had, had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I've called my son. So we see another fulfilled prophecy. Jesus would be, spend some time in Egypt. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children. So we're kind of going back before Herod died now. Uh, all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old and under, under the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, 
Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So what does Herod do in his insecurity? He looks at the town of Bethlehem and he says, take them all out. I want to be sure that I'm going to remain on this throne. Take them all out. Could you imagine being, being in Bethlehem? Being an Israelite, being in Bethlehem. A king that has, he's not, he's not the king of the world. He's the king of Rome. And he says, kill all of our children. All of our male children that are two years old and under. Take them all out. Because I want to make sure that I'm going to be king. Could you imagine being there? Such insecurity of King Herod. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life, they're dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. I would imagine so. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went there and he lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. That he'd be called the Nazarene. This is the story of two kings. Jesus isn't yet on the throne, but everybody is terrified of him because they know what's to come. They know that their kingship is illegitimate. It's undeserving, that they, they've bullied it over, that, that they don't reign with justice and with truth. And the Israelites this whole time are longing for the presence of a better king to come and lead them in justice and in truth and in righteousness and in mercy I want to show you a little bit more about what I discovered in Israel about King Herod. So this is a, this is a little model city. Uh, it's a 50 to 1 scale city of uh, old Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. Now, you'll notice there's a little, there's a little house uh, that has an orange, orange top right on the bottom right there. That's King Herod's palace. Now, you'll notice those three kind of tall buildings right next to King Herod's palace. That's still a part of his palace. Before Herod was king... Those really weren't there. And then you'll notice kind of back in, in the back on the right-hand side, there's, there's a tall building with, with some gold spikes on top of it. That's the temple. If you look just left of the temple, you'll see these four little towers. That's called Antonius's Fortress. Now, King Herod had Antonius's Fortress built so that no matter where he was in the city, he'd be able to get news if someone was coming to try to overthrow his kingdom. So what would happen is that they would, they would kind of call out or shine a, you know, a candle or something from each tower to the other tower so that King Herod, if he was in his palace, could find out what was going on. Once again, you see the absolute terror that King Herod is living with. He's so afraid that he's going to be overthrown. He also had this fortress called Masada that was probably like 75 miles south off of the Dead Sea. And it was, this, it was built on this huge mountain that you could only get up to on this tiny little walkway. And that's where he would go if everything kind of went down. It's just, it's just terrible life to live. But that's what happens when, whenever you're king of somebody's people that, that you have no rightful place to lead, especially king of God's people. And so we see, we've, we've, we've talked about all of these things. We've seen what we've done to ourselves as a people, what the Israelites have done to themselves by wanting to rule over themselves and become their own king. And now I want to show you how Jesus is a better king. This is where we're going to end our sermon today. Jesus is a better king. So we're going to look back at those king's responsibilities we talked about before. 
And we're going to look at how Jesus does things a little bit differently. So the, the king's responsibilities were the establishment of justice, the provision of resources, and the protection of the people. So we've said that a kingdom can only be as good as its king. When Jesus steps onto the scene through his life that we just looked at, about how he was born, his death, which would be on, this, on a cross, the Romans would send him to the cross, Jesus would have, God would have complete control over what was happening to his son. Through his burial, he'd go to a rich man's tomb, and then through his resurrection. All of those things happen to inaugurate the new kingdom of God that you and I have absolute hope in, that we long for God to, to, to come back and to redeem his people. So the establishment of justice, let's look at this. Jesus is both the just and the justifier. So I'm going to look at, quickly, Romans 3.26 says this. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what's that mean? Jesus not only justifies his people, he not only makes them right with God, he not only determines, let me say this again, he not only determines what's just, but he makes his people just. So it's kind of a both end. He's not only saying, you need to live by this lifestyle. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to help you to live this way. I'm going to justify you. I determined what's just because look at my life. I'm perfect. I've never sinned in my life. But I'm also going to come and I'm going to justify you. So he's the definition of what justice actually is, which every kingdom that we looked at before kind of had a faulty view of what true justice actually is and was. And so that's the first part of the good news is that, that he, he determines what's just. We look at his life. He determines what's just. He, he obeys the law fully. And then we look at how he comes and he justifies his people. And we are justified, church. So, so I, want you to, I want you to see that Jesus is a better king because he's both just and he justifies us. And we are justified, as the scriptures say, through faith in the perfect work of the king. That's how we're justified. We, we have faith in the perfect work of the king on our behalf. So, so Jesus fought the fight of obedience in a sinful world so that you and I could be justified as well. So think about this. I tend to look at myself, and I tend to think about my walk with, with God. I think our first temptation when, when someone asks us, you know, how's your relationship with God doing? How's your spiritual growth doing? The first thing that we do is we do what? We look within ourselves. And we say, well, you know, I've been memorizing the Bible. I'm part of this great discipleship group. And you know, we're hearing the word and we're worshiping. And all of these things are great. The, the, our first look when we, when we think about being justified is we look within. Church, the, the, the first look that we should have is we should look to Jesus first. Because when we look to him, we see that everything that is true of him is now true of us. Think about that. Everything that is true of Jesus is now true of us because we have faith in him. And so when the Father, when our Father in heaven looks at us, he sees Jesus. That's what it means to be justified by Jesus, is that he sees the perfect, matchless work of his Son, and that's how he sees us as sons and daughters of himself. He makes us right through faith. The second thing that he does is, is we look at the provision of resources. So Philippians 4.19 says this, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So according to whose riches? According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So how does, how does Jesus do this? How does he meet every single need? 
Well, the king who owns everything, remember we've talked about this, the king owns everything and he determines who gets what. The king owns everything and he lays aside his life. We've looked at Philippians 2 several times as a church. So you look at this about how Jesus became nothing so that, so that we could have everything. This is the work that, that Jesus does. He does this so that we can inherit the true treasure, which is a restored relationship with God. We can be made whole with God. And how exactly does he do that? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. So Jesus had to become sin. So think about the sin in your life right now. Maybe you don't like to think about it. Well, Jesus had to become that sin. Galatians 3 says that he had to be born under the law to redeem those under the law. So Jesus came and he, he put himself under the law, which is what shows us how sinful we are, so that we could be redeemed from the curse of the law, which is we're guilty. We're guilty as charged. That's what Jesus does through us. And because of this, listen to this. This is the best news of all. You cannot possibly be any more righteous than you are right now if you're in Jesus. We are all billionaires of the fruit of the Spirit. You're billionaires. We have so much fruit because of what Jesus has done. And now his life lives inside of us. Theologically, we'd call this, this is a big word, imputed righteousness. So all the righteousness of Jesus, the right living, you know, there was nothing for Jesus to hide. Everything was out in the open. I don't know about you, but there's parts of myself that I don't like people to know. Everything was out in the open with Jesus. He had nothing to hide. And he gave all of that righteousness to you and me so that we can be fully exposed people. Because the curse has been canceled because of the work of Jesus. He came and redeemed our lives. We cannot possibly be any more rich in Christ than we are right now. And he does this so that we can, we can enjoy God, but then also so that we can let our light shine before other men, for other people around us. We can let our light shine because really our light is whose light? It's his light. Just like God was after King David because he had a heart after him so that his light could shine through David's rule and reign, God is after our hearts as well so that his light can shine through our lives. And his kingdom is much more vast than, it's, than it ever was with Israel. Because it transcends every nation, tongue, tribe, people. All who call upon the name of Jesus. We are all co-heirs with Christ. That's what that word means, co-heirs with Christ. And lastly, the protection of the people is what Jesus came to do as well. He came to protect us. And a lot of times we'll read this verse in Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, which is called the Great Commission. So it says, therefore go into all the world and make disciples teaching them to obey all that I've, I've done, baptizing them, I'm, I'm mixing it up, but baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then there's this last phrase that I really want to focus on right now. And we tend to forget this one. And I think this is the most important part of the Great Commission. I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm with you. Do you know what makes you safe? The fact that you have God's presence in your life. That's the definition of protection. That we have God's presence in our life. 1 John 4 goes on to say this, 4.18, there is no fear in love. So we need protection because we're fearful of our enemies, right? There's no, it says there's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with what? Punishment. 
And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So if protection comes with the king's presence, this, this idea of shalom, we talked about this peace that, that encompasses our life as Christians. This comes with the king's presence in our life. And you know what it does? As we grab more and more fully onto it, now none of us have this perfectly, because we all will be fearful of different things, fearful of losing our job, fearful of different relationships, fearful of different conversations you have to have. We're all fearful at times. God is bringing his kingdom more into our lives, and it drives out the fear because we realize that we're already fully acceptable in God's sight because of Jesus. We're all billionaires because of his presence in our lives. And we do this because we think that punishment is still on the table. We, we think that God is still mad at us. You know, I had a moment when I was in Israel looking out at Mount Tabor. And Mount Tabor, there was this, it was a crazy experience. Where there was this rainbow over Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is just outside of Nazareth. I'm standing up on the cliff in Nazareth where, where the rulers of the synagogue would take Jesus out and try to throw him over the cliff. I'm standing there, and then I'm looking out at Mount Tabor, and there's a rainbow over Mount Tabor. It's this wild experience, this promise of God, the sign of a promise. And Mount Tabor was the place that the transfiguration happened, which is where people began to see. There's, there's Elijah and, and Moses and I think Peter, James, and John up there, and they begin to see more fully who Jesus is. And, and this booming voice comes from heaven, and it says this, This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. The reverberations of that voice ring true in our hearts today because we have God's presence inside of us. And that's what Advent is all about. It's about this truth that we're, we're all on this journey. We're all headed somewhere. We've all got a suitcase in our hand. Even though we work jobs and we build houses and we, we, we love the cities and the people that we're with, but we're still longing for home. We're still longing to be with God. We realize that Jesus is a better king because he, he is shalom. That's who he is. He brings peace. Even when we mess it up, even when we say we want a king for ourselves, he comes and he gives us so much more. He gives us his very presence. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your presence is here to stay with us. We thank you that, that because of what Matthew 28, 20 says is that you'll never your son will never leave us, that he, that he dwells inside of us. And because of this, we're all billionaires, the fruit of the Spirit. You're, just, you're reigning and ruling in our lives. And we want to we cling more fully onto that this Advent season. We want to focus on the presence of the King with us, King Jesus. And so, Father, would you teach our hearts that you're with us? Because I think some of us, I mean, I, I know that I really I struggle to believe this sometimes, that you're really with me. I know maybe the people in this room do the same thing. Would you teach our hearts that you're really with us and that you really love us and you really want to show us more of yourself? Would you teach us that this morning? Would you teach us that this week? And would you teach us to long for more of you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.